Hello and welcome to the People Who Read People podcast. I'm Zachary Elwood. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Timothy Jay, a psychologist who has studied the phenomenon of cursing and offensive language and has written several books on that subject. His books include Why We Curse, Cursing in America, and his most recent book published in 2016 is called We Did What? which is a look at inappropriate behavior from throughout American history. I'll be talking to Dr. J about cursing, but also about the use of offensive language by people with Tourette's syndrome and other conditions, including various types of mental illness. First, I wanted to go into a little backstory about why I wanted to talk about this subject. On social media these days, it's a pretty common thing to see videos of people engaging in offensive behavior of someone saying or doing rude antisocial things, which can include misogynistic or racist speech. Some of these examples of bad behavior are of people suffering from mental issues. In some videos, the person's behavior is not just bad, but also incoherent and disorganized. One recent example, the example that led to me wanting to talk about this, was a woman who had been captured in several videos saying racist and rude things to Asian people. There was a lot of outrage about this on social media with people calling her racist and evil and similar harsh judgments. One popular Twitter account shared one of the videos of her and said, This is an ugly American. There's been a sharp increase in these ugly videos over the past three years, and it's getting worse. When I watched a video of her, it seemed quite obvious to me that she wasn't psychologically well. The content of her speech didn't make much sense. It was disorganized and nonsensical. I'm going to play the audio from that widely shared video now. Did you just make you a racist who, comment? You know what? I am not a racist person. You just you just made but a racist you know what? comment. You need to go home. I am from here. Look it. Go home. I am here from here. Go home. I don't care about your Facebook or your video. Oh, okay. You're Do you know a how many people right can't now? stand you being oh, here? Great. You play games. We don't play games. Oh, what kind of game are you playing? I play games where you get fucked to death. Oh, okay. Well, great. Let me let me take your uh, card. Let me you put your number plate too. You get away Great. So this lady I'm calling the just made you. a racist comment. I can't believe this. You are gonna go to real jail now. Well, great. You, you are. Me, China man? I think you're going. You understand me, man? You understand me, China man? Respect. Respect. Respect people, Respect. lady. I don't understand your language, China Respect, China man. lady. Respect. Then you move your car. You are you way go. too close. Get away from me. There you go. You don't even know how to park the car. You don't even know. There you go. You know who my family is? Do you know who your family is? Go home to your family. This is from your government. Respect, go home. lady. Go home. Get this educated is from my and government. respect. This is from my government. Get go home. educated and so respect. Fucked. You're going to get fucked. Your get are gonna get respect. This is my get country. educated and respect, lady. This is my Did country. you finish and college? This is from my government. Did you finish Go college? Home. Did you finish Put college? That on your Facebook. Did you? You know what? Did you? You are nothing. What did well, you say? You're nothing. I exactly. You're nothing right there. Lady, get educated and respect. Little boyfriend. The audio doesn't convey the full strangeness of the encounter and of her behavior. She gets very close to the man and wears a carefree smile at times, almost as if she's having fun or bantering. But she did say quite a few things that stand out as being pretty incoherent. I could spend quite a bit of time on analyzing that speech, but here are a few things that stood out. One thing she says is, you play games, we don't play games. The person she was bothering, the person recording the encounter, then said, oh, what kind of game are you playing? And it sounds like she says, I play games where you get fucked to death, which obviously is pretty strange and doesn't make much sense. Interestingly, in the other videos of her, she had this same theme of talking about games. This is a quote from another video that she was in. Listen to me. We don't play games here anymore. Next time you talk to me like that, you're going to get your ass kicked by my family. They're going to fuck you up. End quote. Then she follows that with these other illogical statements. Do you know who your family is? Do you know who my family is? Go home to your family. This is from your government. Go home. This is from my government. 
go home. You're getting fucked. You are so fucked. You're getting fucked. Your kids are going to get fucked. Just watching this video for a few seconds, this person seemed to me to be clearly suffering from some psychological disturbance. It's so clear to me from just this video, let alone other videos where she's doing similar things. Watching this and seeing the Twitter responses, it was disheartening to me how much outrage and moral judgment her behavior provoked and how much people were trying to fit her behavior into various narratives, whether it was Trump's presidency or racial injustice in general. It was disheartening, but probably shouldn't have been surprising because we do as a society, probably across the world, have a lack of understanding and a lack of empathy about mental illness and the range of behaviors it can lead to. After these videos came out, an apparent friend of the woman's family, who was a doctor, posted it on Twitter about her, saying, She's massively mentally ill, been devastating her family for years, and she's off her meds and needs severe help. No excuse, just thought victims might want to know why. End quote. Now, before I get to the interview with Dr. Timothy J., I wanted to preface it with a couple points. First, obviously there are people who say and do bad and horrible things, who know right from wrong, and who have the amount of control that most people do over their own behavior. In other words, some of these viral videos of bad behavior do show people who are racists or who are just rude or antisocial, who are highly functioning people who would be difficult to categorize as suffering from a condition that would help explain their behavior. This is a long-winded way to state what I hope is obvious, I'm not saying that all bad behavior is due to brain conditions or psychological conditions and can be excused in those ways. The point I do want to make is that in many cases of these widely shared videos of bad behavior, we don't have enough information to come to a good conclusion about what's going on. If someone is behaving in bad ways, especially if they're behaving incoherently, we should first consider the possibility that that person has some condition that might explain their behavior. Because unfortunately, some people who suffer from mental illness can behave in antisocial and aggressive ways, in ways that are out of their control, in ways that they wouldn't behave if they were in a more calm, normal state. In other words, in ways that don't reflect who they really are fundamentally. And so my goal with this episode is to raise awareness about that, because I think that this lack of understanding and empathy is an important topic. It's an especially important topic in a modern society where so much behavior is immediately uploaded for people to analyze and watch and share, and where misunderstandings and overreactions are pretty frequent. And this topic even relates to excessive police violence, because a disproportionate number of people hurt or killed by police are people with mental issues. This is an important issue in many ways. Another aspect I think is often overlooked if someone is behaving in a horrible way and that person is aware that they're being recorded, that scenario greatly increases the odds that that person is suffering from something affecting their judgment. When I look at some of these videos, the first thing that strikes me is that no person who is doing well mentally or in full control of their behavior would behave like that, knowing what most of us know about how these things play out and how such behavior can negatively impact someone's life. Also something I think is not well understood. Sometimes there's a lack of understanding of how someone can be fairly high functioning yet still have serious mental issues. In the example that I played the audio of, the woman in the video was driving a pretty nice car, and some people would use this to support the idea that she couldn't be that mentally ill because she wouldn't be allowed to drive a car if she were. But of course, there are plenty of people driving cars who suffer from mental issues. Some people can have sudden psychotic episodes that come out of the blue. Some people can be quite stable for a while and then have an episode, maybe due to going off their meds or due to stressors in their life or for whatever reason. All of this is to say that I think we as a society, as a planet even, need more understanding of the struggles of people with mental illness and that we need to take a step back when trying to interpret videos of bad behavior because so often we lack context about the situation. And we lack knowledge about the conditions that people in such videos might have. Another note, I myself don't have a degree in psychology, so if I accidentally say something you think is inaccurate or insensitive, my apologies. Any questions or criticisms, please send via the contact form on my website, readingpokertells.video. If this subject interests you, be sure to check out the episode after this one, where I talk to Dr. Rob Tarswell about mental illness. And we touch on some of the same subjects. 
We talk about that woman who I spoke about in this introduction, the woman who was saying racist and strange things to Asian people, the videos of which were widely shared on social media. Dr. Tarswell talks about his thoughts on that video and about what her specific condition might be. If you're interested in mental illness or the modern social media phenomenon of viral videos of bad behavior, it's an interesting conversation. Okay, here's the interview with Dr. Timothy J., which was recorded on July 30th, 2020. Hi, Dr. J. Thanks for coming on. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with uh, how would you define cursing? And would you say it's a, a gray area of language or is it more of a black and white line? First, uh, defining cursing is um, or swearing. It's uh, our use of emotional language uh, for two reasons. One is to vent or to get our emotions out. And the other is to communicate those emotions to other people. So it does both of those things. But usually people think of it in terms of um, venting. But it does, no matter what of, of the variety of words you can pick, there's a whole range of appropriateness. What constitutes a curse word is, um, is gray. There are, you know, there are some that are clearly, like the four-letter words are clearly curse words and have been for hundreds of years. But then there are more mild, slangy expressions that, um, for example, oh, my God. Um, I think a lot of people wouldn't consider oh, my God to be swearing. But a hundred years ago, you couldn't say that on the radio and you couldn't put it in a, in a motion picture. So our... Um, our view of language evolves and appropriateness shifts with, um, like clothing styles, shifts with time. Is it true also, I've read that singing and talking can be governed by different parts of the brain. Is it also true uh, that some curse words, like the more involuntary ones, can be governed by a different section of the brain than normal speech? Is that accurate? Yeah, there, there are clear tie-ins with cursing to the limbic system, the lower, lower part of the brain, and the right hemisphere. So when people have damage to their left hemisphere, where I guess you would say regular languages, when, when there's damage to that part of the brain, people still can swear. And uh, you see this in senility. You see this in dementia, that people forget, people forget who their relatives are, but they still know how to swear. And they're using... It's called non-propositional speech, and, it, and it, there are idioms, cliches, sing-song. That's all lyrics. Those are all in a different part of the brain, connected to regular speech, but in a different part of the brain. Yeah, it kind of makes sense in a way because, you know, when you when you hurt yourself, you know, suddenly you can come out with a curse word, and it seems almost involuntary. Uh, something different in a class different than than when you're just speaking normally you'll now be hearing an ad i don't endorse these ads and i encourage you to remain skeptical of all ads join us each week on the well beyond medicine podcast as we explore the 80 percent of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh. Well Beyond Medicine. Yeah, I think there's a range of... Um, that sort of automaticity. So there are some reactions that are ballistic and they're almost unretrievable. And then there are, there's more thoughtful, more controlled, more purposeful use of swear words. So there's, yeah, there's a range of that. But the habit of swearing, I'll refer to it as a habit because that's, nobody's born with that habit. You, you learn that habit. It's built on our real primitive uh, emotional expressions like crying and yelling and screaming and biting and scratching and what you see in infancy, the, that kind of emotional expression. So the, the habit of swearing when you hit your thumb, classic example, 
It's a learned behavior. So you've written a good amount about Tourette's syndrome, which as people probably know, includes symptoms of involuntary behavior, which can include physical uh, involuntary movements like, uh, you know, small movements and, and uh, repetitive movements, uh, vocal tics like grunting or coughing. And it can include curse words, including offensive sexual words or racial epithets. Is it understood why people with Tourette's cannot control those kinds of behaviors? Or are there respected theories about that? Yeah, the understanding now is um, Tourette syndrome is a motor tic disorder. So it's a it's a you could think of it as a muscular disorder, the inability to control. You can't stop touching the doorknob. Um, you can't stop turning your head. And these symptoms usually start from um, head to tail. So they start from that head and mouth and face, and then they work themselves downward with time. And what's happening is um, the basal ganglia, which control um, movements, ballistic movements, the brake doesn't work on that. And it's thought that the uh, dopamine receptors in the caudate nucleus of the basal ganglia, which puts on the brake, that those aren't working. And so the person has these uncontrollable tics, movements, vocalizations, and um, swear words. For I think it's important to say that the overwhelming majority of Tourette syndrome patients do not have uncontrollable swearing. Most Tourette's do not exhibit uh, corporalia or uncontrollable swearing. And I think that's it's important to say that because we have a, a different stereotype of Tourette syndrome, uh, which is voiced on us by um, popular media. So most, most Tourette's have milder motor tics. And the things that we remember are that, you know, the more dramatic examples that we see on television or movies. Is it known why Tourette's syndrome can present in so many different ways? For example, why does one person uh, have small physical tics and another person say very offensive things like we think about in the popular idea of it? Do you have an opinion on why it, how it presents in, in so many different ways? Well, it's um, a function of the severity of the damage to that motor part of the cortex. Um, so the more widespread that is, the, the, the larger the uh, variety of symptoms. So some people, you know, like any physical impairment, um, there's a wide range of uh, severity. There's a wide range of, uh, of the impairment. So it manifests itself at different levels. I've, I've had students in my class who, after we talk about Tourette syndrome, they, they will come up and tell me, they have Tourette syndrome, and there's no obvious um, indication that they do. They take a medication, and it um, controls the symptoms. Hmm. Is it possible to have um, more taboo or, or um, offensive physical gestures, too, not just offensive uh, verbal statements? Oh, yes. These are um, what they call these corpora phenomena, and um, that, you know, what's interesting about these is they vary from culture to culture. So, you know, giving the finger will work in America, but not in Greece. So, you, so you'll get these like, obscene gestures. Um, it can be things like um, behaviors like, um, you know, pulling down your pants, simulating masturbation. Uh, in Kuwait, uh, there's a documentation of a young girl who would a Muslim who would pull up her skirt and show her leg, which is taboo. Now that, that an American wouldn't do that. So the symptoms manifest themselves in a variety of motor, uncontrollable motor movements. And for the, the people that have the compulsive um, corporal phenomena, this could also be writing, it could also be writing swear words. So there's a wide range of, of motor behaviors besides speech that exhibit this. But, it, but again, it depends on culture. You th we think of this as, as a um, disease like measles, but the, its outer expression depends on a cultural context. 
It's interesting, I think, you know, trying to imagine a culture that has no taboo words, if such a thing could exist, you know, how would, how would someone wired to, uh, with that kind of Tourette's syndrome wiring uh, respond? Would they just go to physical uh, kind of offensive things? Or, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting to think about how much the, the culture influences the, uh, the presentation, yeah. Well, every culture has taboos. Yeah, I guess you have the, to, right? <laughs> yeah, these these are developed by the elders. You know, in ancient times, uh, religious elders created these. So even now, when we look at a culture like Brazil or Spain or um, Den- some some other country where religion is more prominent than in America, you'll get a, a predominance of uh, religious profanities. You know, saying, uh, "Oh my God." Or saying "Holy Mother," where you know things like that, which wouldn't be so taboo in America, but are taboo in these other highly religious cultures. Do you think there's a are there some overlaps or gray areas with other uh, brain or mental issues? You know, for example, can can someone who presents as seemingly having Tourette's maybe have some other mental issues there? And or do you think it's always like a clear cut? No, that's a good question because it comes in a variety of flavors. Like I uh, mentioned before, it can they can be severe. It can be you know more chronic. Tourette's occurs with or co-occurs sometimes with obsessive compulsive disorder or obsessive compulsive behavior. And you can see if you have an uncontrollable touching, like somebody who has to touch everything they walk by. They've got to touch mm. the doorknob. They got to touch the car. They've got to touch the fence. Right. You know, they got to touch the wall. They can't stop that. And so the pharmaceuticals that will alleviate the symptoms of Tourette syndrome will also are also the same things you prescribe with some people with severe obsessive compulsive behavior. Right. So, I mean, how I think about a lot of conditions and issues is there's just this wide spectrum. And, you know, the, the things that we call these conditions are just you know, a, a, an attempt to capture these things that are just so um, on so many dimensions and, and, and across so many spectrums. It seems to be the case here, yeah, because OCD and, and Tourette's, now that you say that, yeah, it's very similar. Well, I, I started studying how and why Americans curse almost, almost 50 years ago. And the reason I've documented this in a half dozen books is this is a not only the words are taboo, but as a phenomenon to study in various specialties from medicine to psychology, counseling, psychiatry, sociolinguistics, therapy, the literature when I started studying this was very thin and scattered. Why I wrote Cursing in America and Why We Curse is to bring together, and if you went through the bibliography, you could see i called on law, medicine, psychology, sociology, mental health. I've, call, I've called from all of these areas little bits and pieces. And it's not until, I would say, within the last 10 years that we now have scholars like me who have found this area to be um, of scholarly interest, you know, that it's a legitimate area. But I, I think over the years and over the different disciplines, this was it pretty much ignored. And it, it's only something dramatic like Tourette syndrome that captures the general public's attention. But swearing is very, it's a very complex physiological, psychological, and cultural phenomenon. When you go to look at the literature of mental health and swearing, you find, I mean, I can ask nurses, I can ask my friends who work in psych wards, do people with substance abuse or anti-social personality swear? Yeah, they sure do. You know, they might pick up something and throw at you. But finding that evidence in the literature is, when I started out, was almost impossible. I've studied swearing in a variety of mental health contexts as a way to educate people, but also as a way to educate my students who want to work with the elderly, who want to work with defiant teenagers, who you know, want to work in nursing homes or people with various um, mental disorders, to let them know what's out there. I've chased this down with 
epilepsy, with senility, with type A personality disorders. You know, and Tourette's syndrome is just one facet of this big complex picture. When I got your book, Why We Curse, one of your books, it was, I honestly, you know, wasn't expecting much because I thought, oh, how much is there to say on this topic? But I, the more I read, I was like, wow, this is actually really interesting. And like a lot of things, it's, you know, it seems like there's not that much to say, but when you actually look at it, you know, you delved into the law, the legal aspects, uh, some cases around it, you know, and yeah, no, just a really, really interesting book. And so you have uh, Why We Curse, and then there was uh, Cursing in America. And I think you wrote one more about cursing. Well, I have a, a books, uh, What to Do When Your Students Talk Dirty, uh, What to Do When Your Kids Talk Dirty. And I have uh, The Psychology of Language, where I try to tie all of this in with n the normal study of language. And then my latest book, uh, which is a, sort of an encyclopedia, it's called we did what? <laughs> and it's all about offensive and inappropriate behavior throughout American history. Oh, so there's like, yeah, that's a, I mean, to me, that's, I loved writing that book because I like these encyclopedia type books. So you look at things, you know, like compulsive swearing, you know, like the evolution of uh, bathing suits in our country, you know, the, the film censorship. I, I put swearing as a, a taboo in the context of you know, sort of all inappropriate behavior. I think what, what I would look back on my career, I would say I, I pioneered this area. You know, I tried to draw things together. And after, I, mean, I tried to document the scope of cursing and why in uh, cursing in America. And then why we curse comes back as the um, theory, like we need a theory to explain. Yeah, well, inappropriate behavior sounds like a fun read. I, I've, I, I, it's, <laughs> I, I, was, I was raised by a fairly religious mother, and my interest in this, you know, comes about through that idea of taboo. You know, like when you learn um, the Ten Commandments, you, you have to know all the things you're, you're not supposed to do so that you don't do them. Right. So those infractions are in everybody's head. Now, I'll say the same thing about swearing. Swearing is normal. Every competent person who learns a language knows how to swear. You have to. You have to know what not to say. And again, that comes in shades of like, wow, that's really bad. Don't say that. Or I can say this with my buddies, but I'm not going to use that word with my doctor. So everybody's ingrained with these things. And it's when you look at uh, mental disorders or dysfunction, like senility or Tourette syndrome or frontal lobe damage, Alzheimer's dementia, there's where you see um, what is usually suppressed. You see what's in there. And it's, I mean, it, it's a fascinating, but for some people, it's too dark. It's too uh, emotionally offensive, you know, to sexist, racist, um, talking about body parts and things that come out of your body. Some people just don't have the sensibility to um, approach that that topic, but it's part of being human. What fascinated me in the beginning was that this was rarely, if ever, discussed in psychology. And you could read a book on developmental psychology about children, or specifically about children's language, and never read that children have trouble with swear words, you know, that they cause problems. But every parent in America knows that. Every parent in America knew that for centuries. Why isn't it in the books that educate people about children? It's a fascinating idea that for a while, I think the, the common person understood this better than scientists wrote about it. Yeah, it's interesting when you talked about evidence, uh, when, research on this being hard to find. I, I had the same experience because, as you know, I, I started looking, Googling about this uh, just recently because I was interested in, you know, racial, uh, racist kind of language from people with mental illness. And I couldn't find much about that, but I also just couldn't find much about antisocial uh, taboo language from people with, with mental illnesses in general. And it kind of made me think that one aspect is not wanting to present a negative view of people suffering from mental illnesses, I think. And it, would you agree with that, that that might be one reason why you wouldn't see that kind of thing written about? Well, I, yeah, I think the underlying there's that, um, you know, let's try to paint a rosy picture. But then I think the, uh, the, the, the scholars working in those areas, 
didn't fully understand it. And yeah, and I think that's another, I'll preface saying that everybody knows how to swear, everybody swears. And so to, you know, to say, oh, people do this because they don't have a good vocabulary or they're undereducated or, you know, they're from a bad background or they have a mental disorder. Well, everybody knows how to do this. So that's not, you know, that's not a criterion to discriminate against someone if everybody knows how to do it. But yeah, I think that's certainly, it's part of our culture. You know, that's why I gave the um, the reminder in the beginning that most Toretters don't have trouble with language. Right. I think there's also this instinct to not talk about it, to not um, present, you know, these these negative viewpoints. You know, for example, I was talking about this on, on Twitter and someone uh, talking about, you know, uh, people with uh, mental issues, schizophrenia, and those kinds of conditions saying, you know, antisocial taboo things. And, and someone said, well, I'm offended that you would talk about that because it gives people, you know, I, I suffer from bipolar and I don't want people having that opinion or having that presentation. And to me, that's that's the wrong way to approach it because you're actually, by not by not talking about it, even if it's a small percentage of people that present like that, you're making less empathy or understanding for the people that do have those presentations. By avoiding the topic, you're also avoiding educating people and, and, and letting people have more understanding about how those symptoms present. And that got me thinking about like the, the instinct we have to not even talk about the taboo, you know, not talk about the, the taboo things people say, you know, it's, it, it can be, there can be beneficial things to talking about it and, and, and letting people understand the, you know, like the issues that Tourette's people suffer from, or the issue, even if it's a small number or the issues that uh, people with other conditions suffer from just just increasing empathy for this this range of behavior that can be you know kind of hard to to wrap your head around or or be empathetic with. There's a a very simple mechanism underlying taboo, and that is once you say this is taboo, don't do it, and you punish people for what they do or what they say. That's the mechanism which makes it powerful. We've done extensive, we've probably done the most extensive studies of children from 1 to 12 and how they learn how to swear and how their parents punish them. We've studied how parents punish children too. So you say that that's a bad word and you, you usually most parents verbally reprimand their kids or they, some of them um, do things like they still wash out their mouth or, you know, make them put hot sauce on their tongue, things like that. It's that punishment of it that reinforces the power of it. And so in any domain where you're talking about children or mental patients, the, the avoidance of the taboo is what keeps it powerful. So we need, I think what we need in, just in terms of mental health is not just why do people with mental disorder swear, but what, what do people with bipolar disorder, what does that whole population look like? And what portion of those people with bipolar disorder or with Tourette syndrome or with um, a senile dementia, what, what's the average in that? And that helps you if you could look at that, you know, the base rate of any phenomenon like Tourette syndrome and say, well, look, 80% of these people don't present this. That way you get a better understanding of swearing, if we're looking at that in mental health population, but it also educates you more about what the average person with senile dementia, what does their speech look like? Because some people get, you know, they get senile and get angry and frustrated and become very infantile and others just become very placid and serene. But what does that whole population look like? And so I think what happens in popular media is we get these exaggerated stereotypes and those become, those become the images that when we, when we call on a memory about something, we dredge up the stereotype instead of, well, most people don't do that. You know, it's like seeing a shark attack and you think, well, millions of people swim every day around the world, but, uh, we're afraid of sharks because we, we saw that on the news last night. So, and I think that I think the same thing. Most of what we hear about mental health patients is when they've done something destructive or self-destructive in the news. You know, the guy that's off his meds, out shouting and swearing, and he's the guy that's going to get on on the news, not 
the millions of people who don't do that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about other mental conditions like schizophrenia or other organic brain conditions that might lead to verbally aggressive or taboo behavior. Uh, do you see some of that kind of pr- behavior as being linked in some way to the same factors that might that lead to taboo uh, language by Tourette syndrome sufferers? Can there be a factor of uh, being drawn to these, even unconsciously being drawn to these taboo or, or antisocial concepts? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think there's two broad categories of uh, problems or, or problem populations. Tourette syndrome, I put in the category with um, when we talked about that uncontrollable, the non-propositional right hemisphere kind of speech. So those people have something that we would call organic. There's something problematic about their brain or they've had brain damage or some type of compromise of the physiology. And so those would be things like stroke, Alzheimer's disease, um, uh, encephalitis. Those that something's wrong with your brain that causes you to expel these taboo words. The second category is not organic, but it's what we would call functional. So this would be, um, this would be more like um, antisocial personality or the type A personality who's always hostile and aggressive, the kind of road rage person. So there's, there's something wrong with them psychologically, but not necessarily their brain. And that, so that these two different populations um, manifest swearing for different reasons. So you can see the same symptom, but the cause of it, it in one case is the brain and in the other case is uh, something, uh, some convention that they've learned or some coping mechanism that they've learned. I've read a good about about, about schizophrenia and psychosis and the theories and presentations of them. And, and some of them have an aspect of, uh, you know, testing boundaries, basically, of, of uh, you know, I, I, one springs to mind. It was a first person memoir about their, you know, schizophrenia experiences and describes them being very aggressive towards the doctors in the you know mental hospital and saying horrible things to them and you know some other uh, presentations play into this but it it strikes me as basically like a boundary testing like they want to they're testing reality in a way like wanting to see um you know what they can get away with uh not to say that it's purposeful but there seems to be a uh, involuntary like you want to see what you can get away with at least for at least for some uh, some patients anyway well yeah there there you've raised two important aspects of this like the uh the schizophrenic's behavior and speech might look chaotic and uh random to you but what what does it mean to that person you know why are they doing this so what you see might be different than what their goal is or what their purpose is. And the second aspect is it really, it, a lot of this really depends on context. So you raised an interesting point that the schizophrenic in a clinical setting with clinicians, with doctors, that is a source of agitation which manifests itself in the offensive language but in a totally different context the person might be much more quiescent and and peaceful so at, we i see that a lot in with senility in a, in a nursing home a nursing home is a very controlled and there's many sources of agitation for a person in a nursing home the, lack of control over what I'm doing, where I'm going. And I, so that the context itself can't be ruled out as giving rise to compulsive swearing or swearing for any mental health patient. You got to look at what's at, where are they when they're doing this? So uh, yeah, yeah, schizophrenia, schizophrenia has, again, uh, it, it's a, can be a wide variety of, uh, 
you know, very florid, unusual behaviors, or it can be, you know, it can be more mild. And, and you take that person in a different context, you have to really look at the person in the context to get a sense of, of what they're presenting. And as you say, I think there's, when people view the world in threatening ways as, as, as schizophrenics do, there there's coping mechanisms, you know, involving lashing out and, and basically offending and, and attacking other people physically or verbally are, are these coping mechanisms to deal with a very threatening world, you know, and it may seem completely outlandish and chaotic and nonsensical to us, but there is some reason there, you know, they're, they're dealing with a very scary, terrifying world. You know? Yes. Yes. Well put. I, I agree with that. You'll now be hearing an ad. I don't endorse these ads and I encourage you to remain skeptical of all ads. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Uh, and this is a topical issue because there's been a lot of cases of people behaving badly uh, in viral videos and and, and a lot of uh, social media um, responses to those kinds of uh, videos that show horrible, offensive, antisocial language. And, you know, that can be anything from just saying horrible things to racist language or just just horrible things in general. In some of these instances, some of these people seem to me to be very high likelihood of having some mental issues going on based on, you know, chaotic and nonsensical other things that they were saying. And when I've brought that idea up in social media, there's a lot of people that respond with basically an idea of uh, even if they're having mental issues, they must be fundamentally hateful or racist or bad in some way to say such things which seems to me just to be a, a lack of understanding of how asocial behavior can present from people with mental issues. So I'm wondering if you have an idea of how much these bad, taboo things that people say, offensive things that people say, actually can be said to reflect what they actually believe, like when they're at a, in a more normal, calm moment or whatever. I'll go back to my Ten Commandments, you know, like everybody knows what's inappropriate. To function in our culture, you have to know what racist language is. Everybody knows those things, but let's have some understanding for why is the person saying this? Do they have a personality disorder? Do they have a substance abuse disorder? Do they have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia? Do they have control over this or not? So you can't say... The argument against the person is like, they still shouldn't do this. Well, you know, if their brain, if they have brain dysfunction, they can't help themselves. You know, people with frontal, frontal lobe damage, they don't have the executive function to stop these things that they would have without the brain damage. So, you know, what part of it is the person and what part of it is the brain? I think that's one thing. And, you know, all of us have this, all of us know what racist language is, but the Toretta who uses the N-word when she's standing in line behind the guy in the bank, you know, that word's in there, but that context, she's, you know, anxious waiting in the bank to do her business, and that occasion triggers that response. I think what people need to do looking in the media, you don't need to just moralize about this, well, you shouldn't do it. Well, the Toretta shouldn't have their tics, but their, their brain is doing it. So you have to really look at where's the agency and what's the context. And again, what crops up in social media are these things that are interesting, dramatic, uh, funny, sad, uh, repulsive. You're not going to put too much mundane things on there. That same person, you know, you know, sitting comfortably on a park bench is not not going to go viral. Time. No, I've written an article about sort of uh, offensive things on on the internet and the moral order over what's out there what should be out there you know like different populations is you know we have free speech but at the same time you know we should have the freedom to not see some things the internet social media is a very complex environment and 
we can see this every day. We're just learning what the limits of this are and, you know, who should control it. So you, you take something problematic that most people don't understand, like swearing, compulsive swearing, and put that out where billions of people can look at it and you're going you're gonna to get confusion about what it really means. People that have mental problems, you can't say, hey, just be normal. If we could control our emotions, we wouldn't need psychiatry. And I think that's kind of the point. Some people can't control these kinds of behaviors. That's why we have all these pharmacological interventions. It's not just a religious moral thing like, hey, behave yourself. You know, all these examples we're using of people with behavior problems, they need help. There was a response yesterday. There was a there was a Twitter thread about Kanye West's mental health struggles and his strange, sometimes offensive public statements. And someone said, if people with mental illness want equal rights, then they should realize that they too will be called out for saying or doing something that is outrageously asinine. I thought about that a bit because in a way there is some truth to it because we still have to judge and call out bad behavior. But it also struck me as very insensitive to that, that these, like you said, these people can't, uh, some people cannot control their behavior in that way. And to just act like it's a matter of calling them out with, you know, it, there needs to be some greater awareness of the, of the struggles people have with various, uh, the various mental struggles people can have. And I think that's what we lack as a, uh, society, you know, uh, widely, it's, you know, just a lack of understanding of, uh, of these kinds of issues. And people jump to conclusions all the time about very bad behavior. And yeah, it just seems like we need more, more understanding about that. Yeah, I think you made a great point. That's probably the un one of the underlying themes of our talk here. And that is an insensitivity to an insensitivity. You're being insensitive to a person who is insensitive, you know, they, they're not controlling their behavior for, for a variety of reasons. So I think what the picture we need to uh, develop is a compassion for somebody who has mental problems and not just fly off the handle interpretation and reaction about what their problems are. You know, it's like, think about what's happening there before you criticize. But we're in a culture where, you know, we're very competitive and so, you know, we want to like knee-jerk reaction to things we like and don't like. And it's just, it's not very thoughtful. By responding to people with mental issues who are displaying antisocial offensive behavior, by giving them outrage, in a way that is what they are seeking, you know, it's not that they're seeking that consciously, I mean, but for whatever reason, they're choosing that antisocial behavior and by giving them that, you're you're basically exacerbating their uh, their issues in a way. I don't know. I, I had a thought there. It didn't come out very well. Think about what your reaction would be to somebody on the corner, maybe not dressed appropriately, closer, disheveled or dirty, and they're spouting on about something and using some offensive or racial language. What's your reaction when you see that person? Most people just want to like, get away from them. Or yell at them or do something aggressive towards them, which is going to make it worse. But what that person needs is help. And the compassionate reaction to that person would be, hey, man, what can I do to help? Can I help you? But our knee-jerk reaction is like, God, get me away from this person. Or being aggressive toward them is going to make things worse. But people should think, how, would I how should I react? How would I explain this to my kid? You know, you've got a little kid that's watching this, and mom, what's wrong with that guy? And then, like, how do you explain it? Can you explain it? Well, yeah, you made me think too. You know, some some of the people I see on the street in in Portland, you know, are that are behaving in in uh, chaotic, uh, aggressive ways. It it almost has an element of they are looking for an interaction with the world, and the fact that they are com continually ignored. It's almost like they, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, but it almost seems like they are looking for someone to interact with them. And the fact that they haven't got interaction makes them continually act, you know, more and more worse. You know, there can, I, think, I think there can be an element of that where it's like they are seeking some connection in some way, you know, and, and, and maybe, maybe a factor of them acting badly is that either they're responded to badly or just completely ignored, you know? I, yeah, I think that the disability population would say the same thing, um, they're invisible. Or, or, or treated like pariahs, one or the other. Yes, yeah. 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 Which neither of those things are good for mental health. 
and I once read somewhere, I can't remember where it, it always stuck with me that it, you know, it was very unfair that the people who really need our love the most are also the people that are, are the most hard for us to love, you know, and, and that that's a tough thing and a, and a sad thing, you know, but I think, I think it's, it's, it's often true. Yeah. Well, I, I think we have a, a healthcare population that attracts a certain kind of person who wants to work with the elderly or the infirm or the disturbed. Not all of us want to do that, you know, so it takes us, it takes a certain kind of sensibility to, to reach out and, and help. But I, I think, again, that, like we've said, the bottom, the bottom line is like we need to be educated about what these populations of patients are, you know, what's their life like. This is kind of a left turn, but something I, you said earlier made me want to ask this. When you talk about religious taboos, you know, like the, uh, the things that a religion or a culture uh, sets aside as taboo. Do you think for people that really follow that um, that religion or that belief system, can there be something about the taboo that draws people to it? You know, it's the it's the forbidden, and and, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I've worked with uh, Mormons who claim they don't swear, at least not in public, but they develop euphemisms. So, uh, darn for damn sugar for shit you know so the mechanism for emotional expression is still there right we're emotional animals but they've learned this other habit which kind of masquerades right it covers up what is there i think the important dimension is order or control right so the person the religious mind is one which has a certain view of the world, what's tolerable, what's not tolerable. And I evaluate my self-worth, my worth as a person by my ability to follow this moral code. And then there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why people reject that or not conform to that, or if they have, you know, mental compromise, why that rigidity would be compromised. And then you would get the um, inappropriate behavior, inappropriate language. Again, some religions are intolerant of any, you know, some of the things we see in the Middle East are intolerant of what Americans would consider as a small infraction, you know, being seen with a woman in public, you know, showing your face in public. Those, That's not even on the radar for most Americans, but, um, it, you know, it depends on how you were raised in that religious culture and what the consequence would be for breaking those taboos if death is a consequence you better not fool around with those taboos. Sometimes it seems like the taboo can represent freedom in a way, you know, maybe, and maybe that's why sometimes people are drawn to those behaviors. And I'm not just thinking about cursing or whatever, but also just, you know, uh, religious people caught doing things that they speak out against, or they kind of want to escape this, the strict thing they've built for themselves or, or, or uh, believe it, in. yeah, I think it's not just freedom. It's like, exhilarating it's exciting mm, exciting it's, right right yeah it's it, it's amazingly appealing because it's so exciting to do this and get away with it the preacher who you know rails against uh sexuality and then gets caught with a prostitute or at, two or three times stop. it's yeah it's a it, whereas like some of these things are you know not not exciting for other people and they're very exciting for the people that have set them as tab taboos yeah I mean, we all experience this all the time. Let me back up. I think what I think what you're saying, living in a orderly life, is is freeing in that I know, you know, I can't stray out of this, so I just do what I'm supposed to do. I won't get into trouble. But then it's exciting if I break out of these rules. So there's like, where are you going to experience this uh, testing the boundaries, you know, and how exciting that is, you know, what, what can I get away with? But if as long as I stay within the rules, everybody's happy. I, I think that's a general aspect of culture. As long as everybody no obeys the rules, the power to control us is invisible. But if you break a rule, then the institutions of power, which could be your parents or religion or government or media standards, they have to assert their authority by punishing you. 
So I always tell my students, if you want to see who's in power, go break a rule. Go do something you're not supposed to do. And somebody, somebody has to sanction that. And I, so I think whether you're talking about religion or any other type of order, you know, that's especially adolescents, you know, they're going through a period where they want to test these boundaries. What's going to happen if I do this? Anything else you would like to talk about as far as behavior or cursing related work that you're working on now? I think to me, there's one of the interesting things is the, since we started kind of looking at social media or the impetus for our talking was images of mental health and language in the media is how is this going to unfold in the future? You know, what are, what are the boundaries? Because we have a culture now, like I look at what's available versus what when I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, you know, like access to offensive language behavior. We have a culture of children now that are, their brains are growing up in a very different environment. And what will that look like going forward? To me, the real puzzle of this, whether it's for um, normal people or people with mental disorders, is we have very little idea about how children, infants acquire these things which eventually become taboo. There's no, there's very little research into, and I think for moral and ethical reasons, it's hard to, you know, like how would you study what parents say to their kids or why kids become racist and what kind of language they're used, how their parents punish them. That to me is the, where I think scholars like me need to focus in the future, like to better understand the, the learning mechanism behind this. Mm. The soap in the mouth doesn't work people. Soap in the mouth does not work. I got that once from my grandmother. That was the only time that ever happened to me. I was, I was like, what is this? What are you doing? Yeah. It's you. We've studied this. It's usually the mother or the grandmother, and it usually takes place in the, in the bathroom, right where you clean up things. And that's why the soap is dirty mouth, you know, clean it up. It's a very primitive punishment, but it's never worked. Censorship has never worked. I mean, these words that four-letter words that we consider are taboo have been around for probably a thousand years. And uh, of course, we're all going to learn them. It's like trying to implement, you know, prohibitions. It's not going to work. You create desire by a taboo. You're not allowed to do this. It's exhilarating, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole industry of keeping people away from sex and children away from sex. That's what makes it powerful. Yeah, and what you said uh, made me think we really need to advance our uh, media literacy and and awareness of, in this modern age, you know, being presented in social media with this constant onslaught of, you know, immediate uh, things that people just did and and off-the-cuff things people said and, and things people captured. You know, we, I think as a society, as a world, really, we need to advance our understanding of a lot of things, you know, and one aspect of that is awareness of mental health, awareness of context, awareness of, uh, you know, you, you can be against a behavior and even decide to punish that behavior without forming a moral judgment about the person doing it. Or, you know, basically withholding judgment in this in this day and age of constantly being bombarded with out of context clips, basically. And I think there's a lot to you know, if we're going to survive basically as a species with this new te- these new technologies, it's it's like we have to become more mature in how we analyze video, media, and behavior in general. You know, you're making me think we we need more education and understanding, less entertainment, less being titillated and uh, knee jerk reactions. We need more thoughtful understanding of well. The Buddhist idea of mindfulness, you know, of like what's really happening here rather than just like, oh, I need to be titillated. I need to be entertained. Let's go on and look, you know, being aware of uh, and understanding these kind of poignant aspects of our life. That's a professor of 40 years of teaching and a psychologist who, who sees this as just a common human frailty. We need mm-hmm. more understanding. Right. And it's just become even, I think with social media and the immediacy of of social media, it's become that much more important because previously, you know, we had gatekeepers of this kind of content that would be like, well, I'm not going to share this with a greater audience because of, 
you know, knowing the context of this or, or whatever. Whereas now that immediately goes online where, you know, a million people can react to it. And these things have become entertainment. As you say, it's in, in a way, these are kind of like watching a gladiator fight or something. It's like, oh, let's see what this conflict is that has been captured, you know? Yeah, I agree. This has been Dr. Timothy J. It's been great talking with you. Any last things you want to say? Any, anything about where people can contact you or find you? Anything like that? I have a, a website. If, I think if you uh, Google Tim J. Cursing, you'll get to my website at uh, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, MCLA. Um, I also I have an author site with my books on um, Amazon if anybody's interested in reading more of this dirty stuff. Um, that's where you <laughs> well, the new book it. sounds great. Yeah, we did what? It's got a picture. It looks like Lucille Ball on the front of it with a quizzical expression. I, I, that book is a, is a hoot. All the entries in it are less than a thousand words. So, you know, you can put it in the bathroom and work your way from beginning to end. Well, it's been great talking with you and, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for considering my work. I appreciate it, Zach. Thanks for listening to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, you can see episode summaries at readingpokertells.video slash blog. If you like the podcast and want to send me a donation, which would increase the likelihood of me doing more interviews, my PayPal email address is info at readingpokertells.com. Otherwise, please leave a rating or review on the platform you listen on. That would be much appreciated. Take care.